scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do indeed confess that you are the Christ, and that you are not just the Christ, but you are our Christ, that you are our Messiah, Lord, that, that you have indeed named us and called us as your people, even as you did name Peter and placed upon him the task of building the church. Lord, so it is our task, and yet we stand before you in awe, Lord, for we do not know how it is that you have called us to this task. So, Lord, as we sit here, as we look to you, we come as a people with a task too great for them. And so we are a people in need, in need of your spirit in this moment to come, to fill our hearts and our minds, to bring the word into our presence, Lord, that it might have hands and feet in our midst. Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to your word now, pray, O oh Lord, that you would come, that you would send your spirit into our hearts according to our need. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, if you're a wise person, or if you know a wise person and can invite them in at a strategic point in time into your life, uh, you can help yourself or maybe they can help you if you need it to, uh, to help figure out really what's, uh, what's essential. Out of all the things that kind of come at us or all the things that we have or all the things that we aspire to, what's, what's essential? That's actually a part of growing up. Uh, growing up is learning how to, to know what matters, what's essential, what's, what's to keep. Um, I've got a two-car garage. We have a two-car garage, and we can get one car in our two-car garage, barely, uh, for the reason that uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things in our basement that are, well, they're essential. 
like we might need them one day. Uh, at least that's the way it feels. And about once a month, I resolve uh, to, to dig into those things and really determine what's essential, what's, what's to keep, uh, what matters and what's important. Because there's a lot of things, not only in our garage, but in this world and in your life that require that. What's essential? If you're going away for a weekend uh, getaway, <clears throat> you don't have to make a lot of decisions. If you're driving, you can just throw a lot of things in the back seat or the trunk that you might need, kind of like my garage. But if you're going backpacking, uh, you're, you're going to have to make some choices about really what is essential, what's absolutely essential. And if you didn't learn that on your first backpacking trip, you learned it by the second time or the third time. If you're carrying around things that just really are not ultimately important. In the big picture, in the biggest picture of all, in the life that you're living in this world, there's a question that this text helps us with today, and that is this. In the big picture, how important is the church? I mean, how essential is it? We, we live in a world where we live in a post-Christian or post-modern world where if you ask around, you'll find that the church falls into a category of extremely optional for many. Or if you live in certain parts of the world, kind of like this one, you, you will find people, and maybe you, would think of the church as something that is, um, well, let's say beneficial. It's a good thing. It's worth dragging yourself here on a Sunday morning uh, because of what occurs most of the time, or often enough, that it's beneficial. But you don't find that description coming from the one who set it all in motion. Jesus doesn't use words like beneficial. It's much more than that. And if he were to walk through the, the basement of your life to determine what's essential, that's one thing that would stand out. What God is up to in this thing. Um, in fact, you could say it like this, and I will. <laughs> the church will always be relegated to the margins of society and the margin of your life. Always. Optional, beneficial. Until you see and hear the one who stands at the center of it. That's what happened to Peter. Peter the fisherman. Peter is our tour guide here. Well, Matthew is the author of this text. But it's, it's, a, it's an encounter, an on-the-road encounter in this narrative of uh, what it's like to be on the road with Jesus. And we see this conversation that occurs with the disciples and Jesus, and that's what we've come to, and we hear this, and we're going to, for the time that we have, and it's not much, but for the time we're going to have, we're going to focus on the centerpiece, what I think is the centerpiece 
of this little paragraph. We're going to look at four verses here. We're going to look at the question that Jesus asked, Peter's answer, and then Jesus' evaluation of Peter's response. And we're going to, I'm going to do it this way, asking these questions and invite you with me. How important is the church? What is it that makes it important? And then ultimately, what's essential to it? And then try to apply it. So here we go. Uh, how important is the church? You might expect someone who makes their living from the church and in the church to have a very strong answer uh, that is very important. So we're going to lay that aside. And we're going to ask some others about that. If you were to walk out on the streets, as someone did recently, not these streets, but other streets with a camera and a microphone, and they asked the question, what do you think about the church? You get answers like these. I'm not a fan of organized religion. It's, it's people telling me how to live my life. Or one person said, well, that's sort of like a temple for studying about God and trying to get closer to him. Another one said, uh, it's a pretty hypocritical group of people. Another one said, it's a pretty cool place. And another one said, uh, it's not necessary to worship God. My faith is more personal than what happens in a gathered building on any Sunday morning. So people are all over the map, really. You may have heard this story, this account Stanley Jones was a Methodist missionary in the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, in India, where he met with Mahatma Gandhi. And it went a little bit like this. Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so at, to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi responded, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. That's what a lot of people think about us. But the answers that we really need to get to this is to see what Jesus himself said. What does Jesus say about the importance of the church? We see it here we see that apparently, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's off the charts. It's off the charts. The church, from Jesus' own estimation, is vitally essential and crucial. And we see it in a couple of ways here in this passage. Exhibit A, Jesus will not relinquish his ownership of the church, he will not put it in anyone else's hands. It's that important that Jesus is the one who inhabits the church, who develops the church, who builds the church, who owns it. He says, I will build, you heard that, right? Verse 18, I will build my church. He's an architect. He's a, he's a builder. He says, I will build my church Paul heard that and understood it. He says to a church gathered, a, a letter was written was like this, and he wants you to hear these words. You are God's field. You are God's building. 
He repeats that in Ephesians 10. He says, you are God's workmanship. You are God's poem is the word. He is doing something. He is working something. It is his work. He will, he is, I will build my church, he says. And Jesus' words here, I will build my church, in a sense are an echo of words that the people of God had heard from the very beginning. Abraham heard, I will be your God. I will make of you a great nation. I will, you will be, through my work in you, a light to the world. In, the, in Exodus, Moses hears these words, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession, for I wills. And Jesus says, I will build my church. I will do that. But I will build, and here's where the ownership comes in. I will build not something strategic. I will build my church. It's mine. I own it. It it belongs to me. Paul got that as well. In Ephesians 1, we hear, And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul repeats himself in Colossians where he says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body. Jesus is the head of the church. This church, for example, belongs to no one else. It belongs to Christ who said, I will build my church. I've um, found these words uh, to be a stretch And I want to ask you to listen carefully, and I'll try to summarize words that try to capture this from, of all places, our denomination's book of church order. And I've gone, I've done the research, this is the first time we've ever cited the book of church order uh, in a sermon in these five short years. But it comes from the preface, which is designed to point uh, point our gaze to the head of the church. And listen to this. Jesus the mediator, the sole priest, prophet, king, savior, and head of the church contains in himself, see, and then there's this overflowing of descriptors of who he is. All the offices in his church and as many of their names attributed to him in the scriptures, he is apostle, teacher, pastor, minister, bishop, and the only lawgiver in Zion. And it belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church. He rules. He teaches his church. And then he says how? Through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately, not immediately, but through the mediators of those who have roles in the church. He rules and reigns and guides his church through those that he has put in place who are looking to him, the head, and understand that Christ is the one who builds his church. He's the authority. 
He calls the shots. He orders our steps. I will build my church, he says. I will build my church, and he will not relinquish that duty to anyone else. And you know what? Sometimes that's our only hope. Always it should be our only hope. That this is not a project that some people got together and say, hey, wouldn't it be great? No, Christ is the one who builds the church and he is the one who remedies the things that are broken. The one who, who addresses issues when people get sideways with one another. He's the one who steps in and says, wait a minute, this is important. He is the one who builds his church and he will not let go of that. And that is our hope. That's exhibit A. Uh, and, and, this, and the next one is the rest of the story. Because Jesus guarantees right here in verse 19, look at it with me, something significant. Jesus guarantees that this enterprise, this project will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The result is certain. There, there's nothing that will, that will divert God's intention for the church. It will be seen through. It may, we may be bruised and it may be scattered along the way, but it, we will finish this enterprise because it belongs to him and he is the one and not even the gates of hell. Gates, by the way, in the ancient world were defensive. They were for defensive purposes or to imprison captives. And when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, what he is saying is as the church is engaged in the work of the church in the world, the, the, the work of the church in the world, there is nothing that will be stronger than the power invested in the church to free captives, to break the bonds, to let prisoners free. And you can go so far as to say, we need to be careful about this, but there's an offensive aspect to the advance of that kingdom against defenses. And the way we do that, we have to be careful and understand. And Paul got, and he reminds us, the weapons of our warfare are not flesh. They're not armaments. Peter put down the sword. It's not that at all. But, the, but, but we have weapons that our divine power to destroy strongholds. And we know what those are. It's the Word of God and His prayer. It's the work of the Spirit. Those are the spiritual weapons that we use in this world to demolish strongholds and to break down gates for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus guarantees that it will not fail. Think about it. The church is the only institution in the history of the world to whom God has given absolute guarantee that in the final analysis it will not fail. Nothing, that's true of nothing else. Jesus won't let go of the control and he guarantees it will not fail. That's how important the church is. But what makes it so important? Why is that? It's this. It's that the mission of God, we get this actually from the rest of the story, not so much from this text. 
we get how important and why it's important by the rest of the story, how it plays out. And what we see there is that the mission of God depends on the church. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me, Tony, that, that God intends something that depends on us? Oh, boy, did he, does he know what he's doing? Does he know us? The mission of God depends on the church? Well, you think about it. As you watch the story unfold, that's the choice he is making continually. He starts with a very ordinary man named Abram. And he says to a man named Abram, he'll change his name later, he's going to say, I have a plan and it involves you. You see, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's not anything that you choose to do or that you can do, but I'm going to make you a great nation. And, and that people will be a blessing to the world. And you've got to think, Abram's saying, who, me? Just like Moses said, who, me? Isaiah says, who, me? Or maybe you've said, who, me? Yes. God uses people like Abram and Isaiah and you for his purposes. An ordinary man caught, this is Abram, an ordinary man caught up in the extraordinary saga of God's cosmic salvage operation. That's what this is. That's what the church is called to. It's mission critical for God's work in the world to use a group like this for his purposes, his purposes. His plan A is the church, and there is no plan B. And others have said that for years. There is no plan B. The church is God's plan A in that redemption rescue operation. Oh, he's the one who remembered his promise to send a redeemer, to rescue lost men and women, to restore creation's glory, and to rule over all with compassion and justice. He remembers his promise, but it's through Abraham. It's through Moses. It's through others. And ultimately, obviously, through Christ. You see, mission has at its heart a sense of, of sending and being sent. That's at the heart of mission. When we talk about God's mission in the world, the church is a called out. That's what that means, a called out people, ecclesia, called out, a people called and then sent. Just as Joseph was sent unwittingly at first to be in a position to save lives in, in a famine. Moses was sent unwittingly at first to deliver a people from exploitation and oppression. Elijah was sent to influence the course of international politics. Jeremiah was sent to proclaim God's word. And Jesus claimed Isaiah's words for himself and said that he was sent to preach good news to proclaim freedom, to give sight to the blind, and to offer release from oppression. And that's why I've appreciated these words from one writer on this topic named Chris Wright, who said, It's not so much the case that God has a mission for His church. We scratch our head over that. What is God's mission for the church here in Cornerstone and Franklin? But it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world 
as that God has a church for his mission. (laughs) That's subtle but significant difference. God has a church for his mission. He is the one who is on mission in the world. And he takes Abraham's and Isaiah's and you to move that into a reality. The early church got it. They understood they were sent from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And and that story unfolds. Listen to this from the book of Acts. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's Acts 6. Acts 14. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see this emerging, this movement forward of groups like this or smaller, sometimes larger, but groups of people as as the gospel advanced. It was a gathered people who would gather. And so in Acts 16, when we read that the churches were strengthened in the faith, it has in view a gathered group of people. A gathered group of people worshiping God, living out His will in the world, is how God's mission advances. It's how it's accomplished. Ambrose uh, was one who, actually, he wrote our introit today that we sang. But that's not the only thing he wrote. In 376, and these words may have been used earlier, but it's the first example I've been able to find, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, who influenced Augustine, by the way, among others, wrote this, after churches were planted in all places and officers were ordained, and then he goes on to describe some things, but I wanted you to hear in the year 376, they're talking about planting churches. They've captured the idea that that God has a purpose for his people in the world, and that is the form that it most regularly takes from Scripture. It's people gathering together around word and sacrament and prayer and being the body but serving the world. Gathering together, called out, and then sent. And the sending takes all kinds of forms. And some of those are church plants and some of them are other ministries in the world. But, but you can begin to see how central and how strategic to God's mission is this planting of churches. God's mission in the world is tied to the planting of churches. And I say that not because there's a verse that, that can easily point to that. But think about this, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptizing. Do you begin to recognize that going and making disciples and baptizing has included in it this notion that there was an identifiable gathering of people that was observable, identifiable with boundaries, that, that, that becoming a disciple means being welcomed into a worshiping community? Tim Keller argues that that all of the evangelistic appeals in the Gospels in the New Testament are essentially uh, appeals to plant churches for that very reason. And when you stand back and you think about it, you can begin to see, yeah, that, that makes some sense. It's not merely sharing my faith with my other neighbor. It's 
It's welcoming them in by faith, by profession of faith, who can say with Peter, you are the son of the living God. Welcoming them into this worshiping community. That's why some of us and some of you gather together and we scratch our heads, not about what is God's mission for our church, but how do we take God's mission and flesh it out? And where would we see churches formed in our midst? Where are the communities? Maybe it's your community. Think about your neighbors and your community who wouldn't drive as far as you did today. Are there people that, that for geographical reasons, wouldn't make the trek that some of you did today? And, and what about them? How, how, does, how does the mission advance there? Or maybe it's for sociological reasons, but, but you have friends that wouldn't come to this church. We might not have room for them, actually, but... But, but you begin to recognize that there are geographical reasons and sometimes there are sociological reasons that, that the presence of another gospel-centered church is strategic for the kingdom's work. And we can applaud that and we can participate in it. And we do. That's what makes it important. That's why we gather around. It's why a friend of mine who some of you know uh, or have read, Tom Wood has used these words, gospel-centered churches are the only hope for our runaway world because new churches attract non-church people on the average of th- three to six times more than older churches. When a church is planted, it, it expands the circumference of the body of Christ. There are more edges There's more entry points. There's not, and when a new church springs up like one in Flat Rock, people are saying, well, why are we doing a new church? Aren't there enough churches around? Are there people sitting at home on Sunday mornings that won't drive as far as you did? Are there people that have not been able to see through a relationship that you may have formed with them, seen your faith? Are there people that are lost and don't know it? Um, The Baptists did this work, so you know it's correct. Um, That of all the churches in Metro Nashville, this this surrounding county, um, the number of people that go to church more than twice a year is over 50%. It's closer to 70. That's hard to believe. But I'm not going to doubt the Baptist. In doing that work, there are a lot of people who have relegated to the church like I have so many things in my basement. Beneficial, but not essential. And that's why Tom Wood would say gospel-centered churches are the only hope for a runaway world. What's essential to it? Just real quickly, let me say this. This is too big to gloss over, but for time's sake, you need to recognize what's essential to this advance of the, of the church. What's central to any church is tucked in this little phrase that Jesus used responding to Peter when he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is that rock? 
It's a rock that is buried and it's out of sight until it's exposed or illuminated by God's Spirit. It's Peter's confession. That's the rock. Peter speaking for the twelve. We know that you cannot separate Peter from his confession. That, that Peter speaking for the twelve got it right when he said, You are the son of the living God. And you, you, you remember what Jesus said, right? Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own. Because nobody ever does. We don't figure this out on our own. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. And that becomes the centerpiece and what's essential to any church and to your life. It's for God to reveal things that you don't figure out on your own. To give you eyes to see what you did not see. It's why we pray. That God would open eyes to be able to see, Christ, you are the son of the living God. And upon that confession, I will build my church. The church exists, the church flourishes, the church is strong, and your life flourishes, exists, and is strong to the degree that you can say with Peter, you are the son of the living God. And I'm going to follow you. I'm going to depend on you. Because as disciples said elsewhere, where else would we go? We live in a culture filled with religious options. And it will be more true 50 years from now. But in a world filled with religious options, with social options, with all kinds of other things to do than gather here, Christ breaks into that world as he's broken into your life and given you eyes to see what you didn't see. The reason you're here is only for that reason. God has revealed something of the beauty of Christ to you. And you have seen, apparently, enough of that beauty to come. And for many of you to keep coming. And for many of you to be able to say, this is life. This is where life is found. This is where the, where the puzzle gets arranged. This is where some of the mystery is explained about the longings of my heart. And what I, what I hope is true. The story that Jesus tells that he's in the center of is a story that all of the world hopes is true. And many have, dis, dis, um, have tossed it discarded it because not that it promises that it doesn't promise enough it's a story that promises for many people too much it promises heaven it promises joy it promises suffering but it promises Christ it promises God who comes to you at this table. And he says, I'm yours. You are mine. There's a, something that happens. There's a lot that happens when this begins to hit you and settle in. And I'm only going to, just for time's sake, mention one. You begin, I'll mention two. You begin to see how important it is for us to think about planting churches. And you've heard a little bit, and there's more to say about that. You begin to see how central that is to the work of the kingdom. 
But there's something personal that happens when this begins to, to settle in. There's a shift that goes on, and the shift is this. You move from being a consumer of religious goods and services to consumed with Christ. There's a movement, there's a shift that goes on because a lot of you here are frankly here because you like it. It's a nice place to be. If you're looking for a church, it's a nice place to be. I like it here, though, begins to weigh less in the big picture. When you begin to see how, how central the church is and the advance of the church and that there are places not far from here, right around here, that don't have a gospel-centered church to proclaim the beauty and the glory of Christ. And you begin to think about your neighbors, who, as I said earlier, who wouldn't drive as far as you do. And as nice as it is to be here, there's a shift that goes on and say, there's something else that matters besides my consumerism. What I need, what I like, and that is what is God up to in this world? Because he's up to something. He's up to making all things new. Including the fabric of a community as well as the nature of a heart. He's making all things new. And he would use you in that good endeavor. When Jesus lived his three years of public ministry, he didn't pack a backpack. He didn't have a place to lay his head. But the last place he laid his head was in a borrowed tomb. He rose from that tomb, and it's that resurrection. It's the resurrection of Christ that is our hope that this story turns on. Because it's the resurrected Christ who launches this enterprise of making all things new. It was after that resurrection, by the way, where he ascended into heaven. And then he was appointed and given a role as head of the church. Ordering our steps. Showing us his grace, his mercy. Helping us reorder our loves. As the head of the church, showing us the way because he is the way. He is it. He's the one who calls you here, who calls you by name, who wraps his arm around you and, and gives himself to you as he will at this table and then sends you, then sends you into the marketplace, into his world as a part of his mission that includes you and his forever love for you. That'll reorder your life. He'll do that. Let's pray. Father, would you would you reorder our loves, our lives, the basements of our lives where we have so much that is non-essential? To be able to think with you with one another and to live out your purposes being centered and focused on the things that are ultimately true and that ultimately matter. Lord, we thank you that you use ordinary men and women who have an extraordinary God 
and who are called into this extraordinary saga of your cosmic redemption plan to rescue lost men and women who don't know they need it because they have yet to see. And so we pray. We pray that you would open eyes, including ours, to see more of the story and more of the beauty of Christ who calls us by name and gives himself to us, Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing.